This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 126. I'm Jim Geary. Today's topic, the increasingly poor odds of forcing even parties to travel for in-person depositions. Four days ago, a federal judge in Washington state rejected a defendant's demand that the plaintiff appear in person for his deposition. That plaintiff, David Henry, is suing the city of Tacoma and two individuals for money damages. Mr. Henry filed the suit in Washington state, but then moved 2,600 miles east to Jonesboro, Georgia. When the city noticed him for deposition, but refused his request to be deposed remotely, Mr. Henry sought a protective order from the court. His argument? Nothing more than that he isn't currently working and so can't afford to travel. He did make a secondary argument about having suffered a recent physical injury that presumably would have affected his ability to make it across the country, but the judge didn't even address this second ground, saying that the plaintiff's financial situation was justification enough. The ruling is an important lesson on the changing judicial sentiments about remote depositions as a supposedly inferior alternative, a change chiefly triggered by the coronavirus pandemic. Before the pandemic, the overwhelming consensus was that remote video depositions were no substitute at all for in-person examinations. And that view was driven almost exclusively by the belief that credibility assessments could only be made in person. But the widespread and effective use of remote video during and since the pandemic has undermined the argument that we need to be in the same room as our witnesses in order to evaluate their truthfulness. You may not be aware that a number of judges have, since the pandemic, tried entire cases online. And information about those experiments has been shared with state and federal judges around the country. So many judges are shifting their views about remote video depositions and are starting to see them as the functional equivalent to those done in person. And that means that demands for the in-person deposition of a geographically distant witness, especially party opponents, aren't being given the same deference as they used to, where the chief argument is the need to make a credibility determination. As I mentioned a moment ago, since the start of the pandemic in early 2020, entire trials have been held remotely and virtually. What has been reported as the country's first pandemic-era online civil jury trial was held in a Texas state court in May 2020. And in August 2020, a Texas criminal judge conducted an entire virtual jury trial where the jury even met in a private virtual room to review the evidence and to deliberate. A third online jury trial followed in Seattle, Washington in federal court there and resulted in a jury verdict of over $1.3 million. And finally, in a fourth similar case, a Florida state court judge also conducted a fully remote civil jury trial in a personal injury case leading to a $300,000 verdict. And every piece of that case was conducted online, including jury selection. All right, so what are the takeaways here? Let's cover some of those, and then we will wrap up this episode with some arguments to make when you are opposing 
remote depositions, and on the flip side, arguments to make when that's exactly what you want. First, when litigating a dispute over whether the deposition of a critical faraway witness, especially party opponents, should be conducted in person or remotely, no matter which side of that fight you are on, it's important to appreciate how extensively remote video has already been used in court proceedings and so how underwhelming the traditional arguments for in-person depositions may now strike your judge. That being the argument that credibility assessments can only be made in person and that because the party to be deposed chose the forum, they should be forced to appear there. Pre-pandemic, those were good arguments. Now, however, a party seeking to force an in-person deposition, again in particular of a distant party opponent, should have additional grounds to argue and should contextualize or tailor those grounds to the facts of the case. And it's a good idea to have a plan B and a plan C in your back pocket. Plan B being you travel to the witness if the court won't order the witness to come to you. And plan C being, you cover all the costs of having the witness travel, airfare, hotels, meals, and so on, all subject, of course, to the ethical limitations that govern your particular jurisdiction relating to the compensation of witnesses. If you are opposing an in-person deposition, if you're arguing in favor of the remote, you should also be aware that the traditional arguments in favor of in-person depositions have lost a great deal of their steam. And you should argue that at least some courts have begun using remote video for even the most critical proceedings in the case, including jury trials. So the courts are shifting away from the belief that credibility assessments can't effectively be made remotely. Second takeaway, the pre-pandemic case law about in-person versus remote is becoming something of a casualty in the wars over this kind of dispute. Your judge will be keenly aware that pre-pandemic rulings, the ones that speak of the lack of reliable technology, just don't hold water anymore. Given the incredible and swift technological advances since the pandemic in remote video and its document handling features. Language in some of those decisions, even just five or 10 years ago, may now strike some judges as relics of an era gone by. That was actually a point that the federal district judge in the Henry versus City of Tacoma case pointed out, that the defendant had largely relied on pre-pandemic authority that has been undermined even in the last few years. Third takeaway, it's important to know as well that some courts have, since the pandemic, developed and applied new multi-pronged tests in order to resolve disputes on in-person versus remote. You'll see that in the Brower and Vargas cases in the show notes. So be sure to research your jurisdiction's case law to see whether your courts have developed a test or a standard for the purpose of uniformly resolving these kinds of disputes. That will help ensure that your arguments fully address them. Now, to put the Henry versus City of Tacoma case in context, I should mention that this was not an epic battle between legal giants that led to this particular ruling, which is to say that it didn't take a lot of legal gymnastics for the plaintiff's common sense argument to win the day. Uh, the plaintiff, David Henry, is pro se. 
and cited only one authority in his motion, which is Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 1. That rule says in part that the federal rules should be construed, administered, and employed by the court and the parties to secure the just, speedy, and inexpensive determination of every action and proceeding. So no fancy footwork in the plaintiff's papers, which I thought really underscored the reason to be concerned here if you've in the past relied heavily on this credibility assessment argument to compel opposing party witnesses to travel long distances. The federal judge here, uh, Lauren King in the Western District of Washington, seemed well aware of the seismic improvement in technology. So even in a case where the plaintiff had no lawyer and no supporting case law, uh, Judge King readily rejected the idea that the deposition of a distant party has to be in person. Now I want to mention that the city's council did an excellent job in their response in opposing Mr. Henry's efforts to stay put in Jonesboro, Georgia for his deposition. Those lawyers made every argument and covered every point that you can think of. They submitted an outstanding and lengthy memorandum of law. They cited a wealth of cases. They analyzed the standards in the Brower and Vargas cases. They even submitted a sworn declaration by one of its attorneys, which explains in depth why the credibility of the plaintiff in that case was of particular concern. And in that declaration, the lawyer identified many of the credibility cues that she has taken note of in her 33 years of practice. And she said, uh, in part, the following, quote, I have on countless occasions followed up on testimony during a deposition based on nonverbal cues, including facial expressions, body movements, which she says often occur below the video screen or table line, breathing, posture, eye contact, hand gestures, tone, and volume. Sometimes, she says, uh, these nonverbal cues are a small movement, a change in breathing, a sound, or a glance made by the deponent, which I believe was only noticeable with me sitting a few feet away from the deponent in the same room. In my experience, some examples of what sometimes cannot be seen by the person taking the deposition or the court reporter or parties include but are not limited to a deep breath, tapping fingers, rubbing hands on legs, crossing legs, uncrossing legs, moving feet, reactions visible and traveling between deponent and others in the room, etc. Overall, based on my experience, uh, she wrote, I believe attorneys have a better opportunity to observe and assess witnesses who are deposed in person as compared to video depositions, particularly where the witness's credibility is an issue. End quote. On top of all that, the city's lawyers had also checked various websites to see exactly what a plane ride from Jonesboro, Georgia to Tacoma, Washington would cost. And at least based on the filings by the city's lawyers, all of those flights were well under $500. So distance notwithstanding, they pointed out, travel to and from was relatively modest and the plaintiff ought to be ordered to appear in the forum the plaintiff chose. All right, now footnote here. It occurred to us that informing the court just how inexpensive getting the plaintiff to Washington State was could work both ways. So maybe a bit of a dilemma here on how to approach this if you deal with this issue. Do you think that maybe the judge was thinking, well, 
If it's so important to have the plaintiff there in person, and if the cost of getting him there is so small, why didn't you just offer to pay for the flight and put the plaintiff up in a hotel? I did notice that the plaintiff, as reflected in the filings, had agreed to appear in person if the city covered his expenses of her traveling and the city said no. So is there any possibility that the judge's ruling to allow the plaintiff to appear remotely was a message to the city that it could have or should have covered the costs if it's really that important? Presumably, any costs incurred by the city for that purpose, any costs advanced to cover the cost of travel, could eventually be taxed against the plaintiff anyway if the city prevails. No way to know any of that, but courts do engage in cost shifting all the time. So maybe this was the court's unspoken way of saying, look, I get your point, but if the guy's out of work and you're telling me an in-person deposition is important to you and you're telling me that the flight's or a couple hundred bucks, dot, dot, dot. Second footnote and a question for you. We noted in the city's opposition papers that they concluded their argument by simply saying the court should deny the motion. They did not ask the court in the alternative to order the plaintiff to appear in person if the city fronts the cost. Now, I understand that many lawyers prefer to avoid these kinds of alternative arguments out of a fear that the judge will go with the less severe alternative. But the question here is, what would you have done? Would you have made the alternative argument in your original opposition papers, or would you have held that back and waited to see what the judge had to say? Now, this is a pending case, and it may well be that the city, now that it's received this ruling just a few days ago, plans to make that offer to the plaintiff. But is there a concern that not raising that argument in the opposition has resulted in waiver, meaning that if the city now offers to pay and the plaintiff now says, no, I won't, even if you offered to pay because the judge said we can do it remotely, has the city risked a ruling finding that this argument should have been made in the original opposition papers and now has been waived? How would you handle that? Would you have sat tight on your uh, absolute refusal to consider remote or would you have offered the alternative of judge if you won't force him to come, at least force him to come if we pay? All right, back to the argument. Anyway, all the core arguments were in the papers for Judge King to consider. And what really won out here was post-pandemic practicality. The court said that over the past few years, things have changed. Video conferencing has become a standard means of taking depositions and the pandemic rendered remote depositions routine as lawyers and parties have adapted to new ways of practicing law. Now, I mentioned the two-pronged test uh, that courts have developed. The two-pronged test cited by the judge in Henry was based on a 2021 Nevada court ruling, Brower versus McDonald's, that's in the show notes, where the court set out a standard of sorts for determining whether a remote deposition should be allowed. The Brower Court first said that leave to permit remote depositions should generally be granted liberally. And the court said the analysis should proceed in two steps. First, the proponent must advance a legitimate reason for seeking a remote deposition. And second, if the movement articulates a legitimate reason, then the burden shifts to the opposing party to make a particularized showing that conducting the deposition by remote means would be prejudicial. 
Citation for that case in the show notes again, as is the Vargas case, another decision that applied that exact same standard. Now, in rejecting the city of Tacoma's arguments that credibility can only be assessed in person, the judge also pointed out that it might actually be easier for defendants to evaluate the credibility of a witness who appears via video conference without a mask than it might be to evaluate the credibility of someone who is wearing a mask while testifying in person. To be clear, courts are not broadly saying that remote depositions, particularly of parties or key witnesses, are always a substitute, but they are clearly shifting in their view. All right, bottom line. One, be aware that the traditional pre-pandemic arguments for compelling critical witnesses to travel are losing their force. Two, be aware that since the pandemic, courts have begun to develop and apply multi-pronged tests for uniformly evaluating disputes over remote versus in-person. Three, be aware that when presenting these arguments, it's essential to contextualize the specific importance of the case and the witness's testimony. Tailoring your arguments to the unique circumstances will make them more compelling. Four, if it's really critical, fly to the witness. Five, if it's really critical, consider paying for the witness's travel costs, airfare, hotel, and meals. Now, of course, it's got to be consistent with the idea that we don't pay witnesses for their testimony. So this would involve some additional research about the ethical limits of compensating witnesses for travel. Next point, if it can't be done in person, consider an order establishing the specific terms and conditions of a remote video appearance. This is very important. You don't want a critical party witness sitting in their car for your deposition. And you don't want them sitting in some corporate conference room that was designed for training, where the camera is mounted on the wall at one end of the room and the witness is 25 feet away. So you've got to nail those details down for critical remote depositions that are going to be conducted by video. Absent an order of that kind, it's kind of the Wild West in terms of what you wind up with when that remote witness logs on. All right? All right, so let's cover some arguments for compelling travel in person and for opposing compelled travel. And some of these arguments are the same that were made by the city of Tacoma. Point number one, if you are arguing for an in-person deposition, argue the importance of a full witness assessment. Just as juries evaluate a witness's demeanor, body language, hand gestures, overall body movement, litigators need the same ability during depositions to prepare for potential trial testimony. It's about getting the most genuine, unfiltered testimony possible. And the head-to-toe demeanor of the deponent is as important to the parties in depositions and in considering settlement as it would be to the court and a trier of fact. There's no difference. That's the argument that the city of Tacoma made. Now, the court there didn't accept it, but the city's lawyers really covered the waterfront in terms of why it's important to see people in person and not just to have that talking headshot. Point number two, argue the reliability of testimony. There's a psychological aspect to being physically present in a formal setting. Witnesses often feel more compelled to be accurate and truthful when they're physically present in a deposition room as opposed to the relative comfort and detachment of a remote setting. In remote depositions, we have little or no ability to evaluate who else is present or participating 
for aiding the witness, or what testimonial aids the deponent is using, sticky notes up against the wall behind the monitor, on the monitor frame itself, on the desk in front of the monitor, on the lap of the deponent. There's simply no way to tell and no way to ensure the integrity of the testimony in that kind of setting. Argument number three, consistency in proceedings. If a witness is expected to testify in person during a trial, then maintaining the same format for depositions ensures a consistent approach throughout the legal process. The examining lawyer, the parties, should not have a different or less comprehensive opportunity to assess the deponent than the trier of fact, just as courts generally require parties to appear in person for final hearings or trials, the parties are entitled to the same treatment. Most cases settle, and the valuation for settlement purpose of the case often depends heavily on the deposition testimony and credibility assessments of key witnesses. Again, talking head videos are a poor substitute. Point number four, argue that travel cost is minimal and inconvenience is minimal. Postpone the deposition if needed. Reset it a few months further down the road so that airfare and less expensive might be booked at lower cost. Always argue the actual cost of travel. And as the Tacoma lawyers did, attach the results of your web searches. Argue and point out actual costs of travel. Run searches. Run gas prices. Argument number five, just pay. Offer to pay the cost of travel. Make that point to the judge. A judge might interpret your unwillingness to front the cost of travel, especially if the cost is very low, as a sign that it's not actually that important to you to see the witness in person. If the total cost of bringing the witness to you is $1,000 or less, what message might it send to the court that you're not willing to invest that? Now, I understand that for many litigants and their lawyers, paying $1,000 might well be the same as paying a million dollars. It just isn't in the cards especially if multiple witnesses are seeking to appear remotely. But for deep pocket defendants like the city of Tacoma, the refusal to pay or the failure to offer that as an option might have been perceived by the judge, rightly or wrongly, as a sign that this was simply a dispute with the pro se defendant. According to one online resource that we looked at, the city of Tacoma, Washington's 2023 biannual budget was $7.4 billion. Here, it sought to force the unemployed Mr. Henry to spend what it told the judge based on its hypothetical web searches somewhere between $298 and $318 for airfare to Tacoma. Of course, there are hotel and meal and maybe rental car and pocket expenses, but it's all a balance, right? So maybe the judge saw this as an effort to hard time the plaintiff or perhaps even as an effort to convince the plaintiff to abandon the lawsuit if it meant constantly spending money to travel across the country. I'm sure you've seen or heard of that in cases where resources of the parties are lopsided. I'm in no way suggesting that's what the city was doing here, but you've surely seen scenarios like that. You have a deep pocket litigant on one side and not so much on the other. I actually asked ChatGPT to tell me what the term was commonly used to describe the opposite of whatever deep pocket defendant is, and it offered up insolvent, bankrupt, and a 16th century term, impecunious. 
actually had to look that up and found a website that says impecunious doesn't just mean having no money. It means that, <laughs> that you almost never have any money. I'll use that in a sentence. When my children were young and still living in the home, I was impecunious. All right, point number six, minimizing technological risks, delays, and disruptions. Just as technical glitches during a trial can cause significant interruptions or misinterpretations, the same is certainly true for depositions. Yes, the technology has improved, but we've all had depositions where the technology went haywire, where the signal was terrible and disruptive and essentially ruined the deposition. So removing technological barriers ensures the integrity of the process. Next point, prevention of outside influence. While a jury trial is held in a controlled environment to prevent witness tampering or coaching, the same level of control is needed during depositions to ensure the witness's testimony is entirely their own. There's simply no way to ensure that a critical deponent isn't being influenced by notes, audio, nonverbal signals, or other communications or cues that cannot be seen. Let's switch to the other side of the coin, arguments against travel. Number one, technological equivalence to in-person depositions. Make the argument that advanced video conferencing technology today offers very high definition video and audio and makes it possible to clearly see and hear witnesses capture their facial expressions, voice intonations, and other nonverbal cues, just as you would in person. Next point to argue, consistency with other proceedings. If courts or other entities are permitting remote appearances in other stages of the litigation or in other contexts or even in jury trials, it really is inconsistent with that notion to require in-person appearance specifically for a deposition. Next argument, the filing location doesn't necessarily have to be the deposition location. Just because a plaintiff or a defendant, if the defendant for some reason had an influence on the venue, chose a particular location for the lawsuit, often based on purely jurisdictional or legal or strategic reasons, doesn't mean that that's the most convenient or logical place for all proceedings, especially for preliminary steps like depositions. Argue next, travel isn't merely inconvenient, it can be downright burdensome especially for individuals who are unemployed, elderly, have health concerns, or face other financial limitations. Travel for these folks can be more than an inconvenience. It can be a genuine, unnecessary hardship. If a less burdensome alternative exists, such as a remote deposition, it's the logical choice. Make the argument that Mr. Henry did under Federal Rule 1, that the goal is to make lawsuits as efficient and cost-effective as possible, so argue the reduced cost and expediency of a remote deposition. Remote depots can often be scheduled and conducted more quickly and with less expense. So if the goal of the legal system is to pursue justice efficiently, remote methods align with that goal. Another point to argue, objective over subjective. Argue that the subjective notion or feeling that it's easier to evaluate somebody in person should be weighed against objective benefits of remote depositions like cost savings, health considerations, and technological advancements. Another point to make, you don't want to forget public health considerations. Given the lessons from the pandemic, there's an enhanced understanding of the potential risks 
of unnecessary travel and in-person meetings. So the health and safety of all parties involved should always be a primary concern. Another point to argue, comfort and authenticity. Argue to the court that witnesses often feel more at ease in their own environments, potentially leading to more open and honest testimony. And one last one, reduction of intimidation. We can argue that the formal setting of a courtroom or deposition room uh, can be intimidating for some witnesses. And so a remote setting might reduce anxiety and make the witnesses more comfortable. All right, interesting stuff. The pandemic has really affected judicial views on the issue of remote versus in-person and has led many judges to see the two as interchangeable, absent, of course, a compelling particularized need. The judge in the city of Tacoma case took pains to point out that pre-pandemic case law is based on traditional legacy views about depositions and technology and that the tech piece has improved to the point of making these two forms of depositions equivalent. And it raises the question, if the judicial system and the rules of procedure were being created from scratch today with today's technology, would there be much argument that depositions, hearings, and even trials could be done remotely? Would we even need courtrooms if testimony can either be presented live but remotely or even through videotaped testimony and argument all edited to exclude objectionable content and presented in final form, almost in a box, to a remote jury. We've actually got a 2021 law review article for you in the show notes titled The Jury Trial Reinvented that offers that exact scenario and explains how it could be done. All right, that's it for today. As always, thank you for listening and be sure to check out the book on which this podcast is based, 10,000 Depositions Later, the premier litigation guide for superior deposition practice, now in its fourth edition at more than 600 pages and available everywhere books are sold. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.